0: Well, howdy, howdy, good morning. So, uh, so if you're just joining us, uh, we're in part three of a message series called uh, the gospel in four words, where we have been uh, looking at this good news about God that Jesus came to bring to us. And we've kind of put it down into four simple, good words. Those are with, for, ahead, and so. So. We've already talked about God being with us, God being for us. And today we get to talk about God being ahead of us, which seems sort of like a strange thing uh, to talk about, especially this time of year when uh, so much of our attention is focused on what God had done way back when in a little town called Bethlehem, but we're in the season of Advent, a, a season in the life of the church where we not only remember what God did way back when in that manger in the little town of Bethlehem, when Jesus first came to the world, but Advent is also a time where we prepare for Jesus's next coming into the world sometime in the future as our healer King. So, in order uh, to talk about God being ahead of us, uh, first, we need to have a little bit of a, of a physics lesson, uh, because I, I think it's, it's easier for us to kind of think of God being ahead of us in terms of physics than it is in terms of time, because God's concept of time is just so radically different than the way that we think about linear time. So we're going to stick with physics, but... Don't worry if I've already given you anxiety. Uh, Physics is not my area of expertise. Okay. So this is like high school level physics. Okay. Um, So travel back with me in time, you know, fourth period, high school physics, palms are sweaty. Your face is pimply. Are we there? Yeah. Okay. So physics. All right. So way back when there was this guy named Isaac Newton, he was sort of the the grandfather of physics. And and from him, um, we get things like uh, gravity. Remember the apple falls off the tree, bonks him on the head. He realizes, oh, there's a force all around us pulling things in certain directions called gravity. And we got from Isaac Newton, Newtonian mechanics, which is sort of the foundational premise of all of physics. Essentially, it's this idea that everything in this world is ordered and controlled by forces. And now we can talk about many different types of forces, but this is not AP physics. This is, you know, just elementary fundamental ones. So we'll talk about the two elementary ones. The two forces that have been at work in your life since the moment that you got up countless times today are push And pull two forces that cause motion or movement. For something to move, there has to be a pull or a push on an object. But when there is a balance between this pull force and this push force, like tug of war, right? Uh, When there's a balance between those two forces, the object stays relatively still. And that's why we're all not floating up into space right now, because the pull and push of gravity on your body keeps you planted in your seat, which is all good news. But when there is an unbalance between pull and push, that's when an object begins to move. So a pull force is a force that pulls an object closer towards that which is pulling. When there's a force that moves an object closer, that's the pull force. When there's a a force that moves an object further away, that is a push force. Uh, A push force is an object uh, moving away from that which which is, pulling. But then you also have to account for uh vector quantities, uh meaning that there is magnitude and direction of a movement in this pull or push force. This goes back to the second law of Newtonian movement that force equals mass times acceleration. So, are you all with me so far? Did I lose anyone? yeah okay, good. so let me just give you an example. all right. Let me try to simplify this even more. So uh, my oldest son lost his first first tooth last week. Big deal big moment for us. And, and before, I, before I tell you about how my son lost his first tooth, I, I first have to say this. Um, this was his idea. Um, so after you hear the story of how he lost his tooth, you know, just keep your comments to yourself. Um, keep that email in draft. Don't, don't send it to me. This was his idea. Uh, and no one was uh, harmed too badly in the losing of this first tooth. But it was my son's idea. Uh, to use physics to lose his first tooth. He had this idea to tie a string to his tooth and the other end of that string to our dog preacher. So now we have three objects not in motion. We have the loose tooth, the string, and the dog. And so what I did was I took a ball and I threw it ahead, direction, And off goes our 80 pound dog, uh, Magnitude Preacher is his name. He went bounding for it with such speed that out came the tooth. Just like, I mean, it, it didn't just get pulled out. It, it popped out in the same direction as this bounding hound. I mean, the, the tooth was already pretty wiggly, so it, it didn't it didn't have a chance to withstand the force of this 80 pound dog running after the ball. So when there there is this imbalance of forces, there's movement. The tooth was already loose. It was already wiggling. It was ready to go. It just needed a little something to pull it forward and to pull it out. Now, what does any of that have to do with God? Well, there is an imbalance of forces between us and God. There's an imbalance of forces between humanity and God. And and although we may want to stay rooted and place and stuck right where we are, God is constantly pulling us forward. And as the story of scripture goes, the divine pull of God is always going to be stronger than human resistance than that human push that that's that's the good news. That's the story of scripture that no matter. Matter how stubborn we might be, no matter how much we resist, no matter how hard we might try to push back against God, God is always going to win this tug-of-war game. That's the story of the Bible from beginning to end, and, and that's how that's how the story ends. I mean, that's the story of, of the book of Revelation. And I know Revelation may be that book that kind of freaks you out a little bit, but but think of it in terms of this kind of cosmic tug of war between God and human resistance, that God is trying to pull us into this good future, into this new good creation for humanity and humanity for the most part is pushing against that, but our our push against it's it's futile. That the magnitude of God's pull overpowers any darkness, overpowers any sin, overpowers any pushes against that good future that God has for us. But what is really interesting is what happens between now and then, that then being some time in the future. I told you how the story ends, but but I believe that that God's vector quantity is constantly pulling us ahead, constantly pulling us forward into a greater, into a better future than we could have ever possibly imagined ourselves. And this is a big deal because a lot of times. A lot of the times that we, we talk about God, we don't talk about God being ahead of us. That instead, we, we talk about God being behind us some, somewhere in the past who's endlessly trying to get us to return to some pristine state of how things used to be. And this is the central question of, of our day about, well, about just about everything is, is the best future for us a return to the past or is the best future for us actually in the future somewhere ahead of us? And for many people, we, we see the Bible as this back in the past, dusty backwards, regressive kind of thing. So let me take us to a passage of scripture. This is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21 It says when you wage war against your enemies and the Lord hands them over to you and you take prisoners. If you see among the captives, a beautiful woman, and you fall in love with her and take her as your wife, bringing her into your home, she must shave her head, cut her nails, remove her prisoners clothing and live in your house, mourning her father and her mother for one month. After that, you may consummate the marriage. You will be her husband and she will be your wife. But if you aren't pleased with her, you must send her away as she wishes. You are not allowed to sell her for money or treat her as a slave because you have humiliated her. Okay. Where where do we begin here? Right? I mean, it's kind of... It's kind of brutal, right? I mean, how, how primitive, how barbaric, how demeaning, how degrading is a passage like this? I mean, this is why we think God is, is dusty and backwards. How could anyone with, with an ounce of respect for, for women find anything but this being a giant leap backwards for our treatment of women? Good point, good point. But let's just step back and take a look at this sort of sort of piece by piece. Let's break it down a little bit. This passage is about the spoils of war, which was a common occurrence in the ancient Near East. People were constantly going to war over land and over food, which meant that people were constantly winning battles, which meant that people were constantly losing battles, which meant that people were constantly being killed. Now, at the time, it was customary that whoever won a battle could take whatever they wanted from their now dead adversaries for themselves, which included things like animals and food and property and slaves. And of course, it included women According to the rules of engagement during the day, you were free to do whatever you wanted to do with your spoils of war, because those spoils of war were seen as your property and property was seen as less than human to be used or abused, to be uh, discarded or kept however you saw fit. That's just the way that things went. And it's into that period of time, in, into that event that this passage comes about the rules for the spoils of war. And we might think as, as modern readers that, that it, this isn't the case. But, but for them back in the day, this, this ethic was light years ahead of its time. You see, first... By taking a woman you found attractive and taking her back to your home, it meant that you would have to provide for her provide a food, provide food, provide a roof, provide protection, clothing, all of that. Second, to have her shave her head and trim her nails and uh, take off her prisoner's clothes and put on new clothes was to allow her to take on the marks of mourning, to take on the marks of grieving, that this poor woman had just suffered this horrific loss. And so she has to have time to properly grieve. Now, what's interesting is that grief is a human emotion. Property and possessions don't grieve. Spoils of war don't have feelings. And so to give her time to grieve was to treat her as a person and not as a possession. Ahead. <laughs> Third, to make her your wife meant that she was now going to be a a fully functioning member of the household, that she had responsibilities and position within the family dynamic. And and fourth, when a man at, at that day was not pleased with a woman, he was free to send her away into a world, into a culture where she knew no one. She had no rights. She had no protection. She had no future. However, this passage forbids sending a rejected woman away without any rights or dignity or honor. This was a significant deviation from the social norms that were present during the day. So when we read a passage like this, it's, it's shocking and offensive. But in that day, it was actually groundbreaking, a groundbreaking progressive advancement And it might seem like it's a it's a number of steps backwards. But for the original audience at at the time, it was actually quite a few steps forward. Now, did the ancient Israelites have a long way to go in their treatment of women? Of course. Do we still have a long way to go in our treatment of women Of course, just drive down U.S. 19 between here and and St. Pete and you will see all the clubs for gentlemen or turn on anything on the news or just Google the wage gap between men and women. We still have a long way to go. But what we see in this passage is God meeting people right where they are in the world that they currently find themselves and pulling them into a better future, pulling them into a future that is more just and hopeful and loving, but just like in physics. This divine pull into a future that is more just and hopeful and loving is also met with a resistance force. The resistance force of our stubborn human hearts. They want to keep things the way that they are digging heels into the ground, resisting this new future that God is calling us into and as advanced and as intelligent and as educated as we might think that we are, there are some things about us as human beings that have not changed for thousands of years. And it's very important to be totally honest about this glaring reality that we can look back on things like Deuteronomy 21 or or countless other passages throughout the Bible or, or history from around the world and think, wow, we have progressed so far. And yet the human heart has remained significantly unchanged That we still have this tremendous capacity to produce extraordinary ignorance and evil and destruction upon the world. We, We still need help. We still need to be pulled into a better future. We still need God to be ahead of us, yanking us along into a future that is so much better than our present world. The U.S., the nation that that we all live in, has enough nuclear weapons to blow up the world several times over. Think about that. The U.S. that has a population of about 4.25% of the entire world's population has more than half of the entire weaponry in all of the world. It's just astounding. And again, like physics, my expertise is not in national defense or foreign policy, but my point that I'm trying to make is, is this, when people say, you know, the Old Testament, it just seems like it's so much, it's so full of violence and bloodshed and war all the time. Well, so are we. I mean, in my short lifetime, I've already experienced a couple wars In our world, there are multi-billionaires, and yet there's people who are still hungry and malnourished, not just in developing countries, but right here in our own city. There's still poverty. There's still greed. There's still uh, corruption. There's still domestic violence and abuse and hunger and homelessness, and the list could go on and on and on and on. We still have a serious problem, and we still need help. And to read the Bible, to read the Bible as a book about those primitive people way back when who made a mess of everything and God was constantly calling them forward. And we miss the glaring fact that we too are in desperate need to be rescued, that, that we too need to be brought forward into a future. To, to miss that is the most epic historic case of seeing the splinter in someone else's eye and ignoring the log in our very own. We, we still need to be yanked forward by this divine pole into a future that is so much better than right now. And we, we can't settle for the present because God is always ahead of us. God is always pulling us. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah Uh, wrote in in the eighth century B.C. to uh, to the Jewish people who were living through extreme hardship. I mean, literally their their land had been taken over, conquered by a foreign enemy, and they had been dragged off as exiles to live in a foreign land. And so Isaiah in the eighth century B.C., he wrote these words as a sign of of hope and peace to come in the future. He says this in Isaiah two. God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. Then they will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will no longer learn how to make war. Come house of Jacob, come Israel. Let's walk by the Lord's light. That's God calling people ahead in the eighth century BC. We still haven't made it there. We still know how to make war and yet God keeps pulling. And even though the human heart continues to resist, continues to have its roots dug deep in pride and selfishness and self preservation, God doesn't stop pulling. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Meaning that God doesn't stop pulling us into a better future. And if we're at A, God is pulling us to B. If we're at F, God is pulling us to G. And if we're at G and we fall all the way back to A and we treat each other real ugly, guess what? God's going to call us back to B and to C and to D and so on. God promises that there will be a day where the beginning and the end will meet. And in the meantime, in the meantime, do you know what God is up to? Let's go back to Isaiah a little bit later on in the book. This is Isaiah 43 He says this. He says, don't remember the prior things. Don't don't ponder ancient history. Look, I'm doing a new thing. Now it sprouts up. Don't you recognize it? I'm making a way in the desert pass or streams in the wilderness What is this new thing that Isaiah was writing about in the eighth century, thousands of years ago, this new thing was, was a new God thing. God was making a new way in the wild wilderness of our world. And this way is Jesus. Jesus has come to uproot our hard human hearts that, that resist this this divine pull towards God. Jesus came to say, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is here, and now the kingdom of God is within you. Don't you recognize it? Don't you perceive it? And you know, Jesus didn't come and snap his fingers and bring balance back to a chaotic, unbalanced world. But instead, what Jesus did was he used the most powerful force to pull us closer to God. Jesus used the force of love. That is greater than any hate, greater than any darkness, greater than any sin to unbalance the forces of darkness within our own hearts and to uproot our hearts and bring them closer to God. And we killed him because of that. We killed him because of that. But the good news is that God is always ahead. The good news is that God pulled Jesus right out of the grave. God pulled Jesus right out of death and darkness. God pulled Jesus right out of hell. And he invites us to join him as well. God promises that we can be pulled out of whatever darkness, whatever hell that we are going through. And Jesus invites us to walk in this new way, this new life, this new truth, this water bubbling up in the wilderness kind of way, this shoot coming out of a dead stump kind of way, this resurrection kind of way that Jesus calls us, beckons us to come into. It's not just something that is way back when that happened so long ago. And it's not something that is somewhere far off in the distant, but it's here. And now that if we could loosen, if we could loosen our stubborn hearts to begin to give way to him, he will pull us into a future that is more just that is more hopeful, that is more loving. So all of this raises an important question. What is God up to? What is God up to here? And now we talk about God being with us and for us and, and ahead of us, but, but what does any of that have to do with our everyday lives here and now in the modern world? Well, that's a really good question. One that requires another simple word of good news. So, so we're going to talk about that next week. I hope that you'll join us as we talk about. So let me pray for us. Lord, you are the God who, uh, was, who is, who is to come. Lord, unbury, unearth our hearts from those deep, dark places. Shoot them up into new life, that they may praise you, that they may seek your light that is breaking forth into this world. God, forgive us for our attempts to push against that. God, God, forgive us for our resistance towards you. And instead, Lord, continue to pull. Continue to pull with your great magnitude in the direction of your kingdom, a new creation that we may all be made new in your likeness and in your image. And God, in the meantime, Help us to see that help us to live in that way. Help us to treat one another as if we are all being made new again through you pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.